You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. It's September 20th, 2023, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, Redfly Cyber Espionage targets a national grid. DHS Threat Assessment looks at critical infrastructure threats. A look at the ICS threat landscape. DOE grants for research into distributed energy cybersecurity. CISA offers free vulnerability scanning for water infrastructure. And CISA issues ICS advisories. Today's guest is Michael Tucker. He's a cybersecurity advisor at the United States Department of Energy's Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security, and Emergency Response. We talk community defense. The Learning Lab has part one of Mark Urban's conversation with Alex Beretta, senior solution architect at Dragos. They're talking secure remote access. Symantec warns that the Redfly threat actor used the Shadowpad Trojan to compromise a national grid in an Asian country for as long as six months earlier this year. The attack began in February, and the objective appears to be espionage or battle space preparation. The campaign has overlaps with previous attacks attributed to the China-linked threat actor APT-41. Symantec Threat Hunter Team Principal Intelligence Analyst Dick O'Brien told the Register that the same command and control server was used in a breach of India's power grid last year. The researchers don't make any definitive attributions, however. Symantec also hasn't disclosed which country was targeted in this case, although O'Brien told Wired that it was one that China would have an interest in from a strategic perspective. Symantec notes... While Symantec has not seen any disruptive activity by Redfly, the fact that such attacks have occurred in other regions means they are not outside the bounds of possibility. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security's annual threat assessment warns that state-backed actors are exploring the use of artificial intelligence to assist in writing malware for disruptive attacks against U.S. critical infrastructure, CyberScoop reports. The report states... Malicious cyber actors have begun testing the capabilities of AI-developed malware and AI-assisted software development, technologies that have the potential to enable larger-scale, faster, efficient, and more evasive cyber attacks against targets including pipelines, railways, and other U.S. critical infrastructure. Adversarial governments, most notably the PRC, are developing other AI technologies that could undermine U.S. cyber defenses including generative AI programs that support malicious activity, such as malware attacks. Kaspersky has published a report looking at the threat landscape for industrial automation systems in the first half of 2023, observing an increase in attacks against ICS entities in Western Europe, the U.S. and Canada, Australia and New Zealand, and Northern Europe. Despite this increase, however, These regions still have the lowest ICS attack percentages compared to other parts of the world. 
Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East had the highest percentage of ICS attacks based on Kaspersky's visibility. A survey by Cybellum has found that 70% of industrial equipment manufacturers have immature product security programs, while nearly half lack a dedicated security function for control systems and devices within their organizational structure. The researchers note that the primary product security challenge faced by industrial equipment manufacturers revolves around the pursuit for enhanced efficiency, including optimizing the utilization of cybersecurity talent, reducing manual efforts, and expediting processes. The U.S. Department of Energy has awarded $39 million in funding for nine National Laboratory Research Development and Demonstration Projects focused on cybersecurity for distributed energy resources, Security Week reports. The money will go to projects at Argonne, Brookhaven, Lawrence, Berkeley, Sandia, Oak Ridge, Pacific Northwest, and the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. The DOE said in its announcement, the National Laboratory teams aim to improve real-time DER operation data analytics using artificial intelligence, machine learning, and secure cloud-based solutions for DER applications. The labs will develop security solutions for current and emerging communication architectures for DER systems and develop innovative real-time or offline analysis technologies that secure DER. Last week, ransomware attacks against two large casino operators, Caesars Entertainment and MGM Resorts, attracted widespread attention. While slot machines are hardly critical infrastructure— Perhaps the incidents will draw attention to the risk of more consequential attacks. Wired argues that while there seems to be an element of frivolity in the attention high-profile incidents like the attacks against MGM Resorts and Caesars Entertainment attract, nonetheless, such attention drives awareness, response, and sometimes effective public policy. Wired quotes Leslie Carhart, director of incident response at Dragos, which specializes in industrial cybersecurity, as stating, attacks against casinos are dramatic and draw attention. We have whole movie and TV franchises about casino heists. A lot of life-impacting attacks on critical infrastructure and healthcare occur far less visibly, and therefore they aren't an easy draw for mass media. I do not think this is an issue with cybersecurity or even media in its entirety, It's a human psychology issue. We've had that problem for a long time in the industrial control system cybersecurity space where attacks could really mean life or death, but are not a great story. There is certainly an ongoing ransomware threat to infrastructure. In one current example, the International Joint Commission, an organization that handles water issues along the Canada-United States border, has experienced a ransomware attack. The commission has disclosed few details. The No Escape ransomware gang claimed responsibility for the attack, saying it's taken 80 gigabytes of sensitive data, which it will begin leaking if the demands aren't met. The data is said to include contracts, legal documents, personal information belonging to people associated with the ICJ, financial data, insurance information, geological files, and much other confidential and sensitive information. No Escape said in its leak notice, sounding like a comic book villain, if management continues to remain silent and does not take the step to negotiate with us, 
All data will be published. We have more than 50,000 confidential files, and if they become public, a new wave of problems will be colossal. For now, we will not disclose this data or operate with it, but if you continue to lie further, you know what awaits you. Release of business data is troubling in itself. The possibility of pivoting from business systems to operational technology proper is a matter of even more concern. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is offering a free vulnerability scanning service for water and wastewater utilities. The agency stated, CISA uses automated tools to conduct vulnerability scanning on your external networks. These tools look for vulnerabilities and weak configurations that adversaries could use to conduct a cyber attack. CISA's scanning provides an external, non-intrusive review of Internet-accessible systems. The scanning does not reach your private network and cannot make any changes. CISA will send you weekly reports with information on known vulnerabilities found on your Internet-accessible assets, week-to-week comparisons, and recommended mitigations. Interested organizations can sign up for the service by emailing CISA. And finally, CISA last week issued seven advisories for vulnerabilities affecting industrial control systems. Six of the advisories affect Siemens products, while one relates to Rockwell Automation's Pavilion 8 predictive control software. Our special guest this week is Michael Tucker. He's a cybersecurity advisor at the United States Department of Energy's Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security, and Emergency Response. Today, we discuss community defense. So let's start off with uh, getting to know you a little bit. Can you give us a a little bit of uh, your career journey here? I mean, where did you get your start and, and what led you to where you are today? Yeah, sure thing. Um, I uh, I graduated from the University of Missouri uh, at Rolla back in 2005, uh, and I ended up going to go work for a top five power engineering firm, uh, Burns and McDonald. And so the way that I got, uh, they had a little startup group uh, within Burns and McDonald called the SIP Group, C-I-P, uh, and you had to spell it right in order to be uh, employed by them. Uh, and so I was brought into that particular startup group. In fact, I got my start there. Uh, because I did an, uh, a vulnerability assessment on their website uh, after doing my first interview, and I sent them the results. So they decided to hire me afterwards. Uh, this is not career advice I suggest anyone follow uh, these days. It's a little bit more aggressive than it was back in 2005. And so where did you go next, and what ultimately led you to the DOE? Yeah, so uh, I worked at Burns & Mac for about six years doing vulnerability assessments, pen tests, and a lot of compliance-related activities on electric power infrastructure. And it was pretty much all electric power infrastructure. So I started uh, cyber in um, ICS and OT, like when it really was not cool and people made fun of it. So uh, after that, I worked for a, a, a utility uh, for... Uh, about a year, year and a half in their power generation division, working on some of the big iron power generation systems. So those turbine control systems, balance plant. Uh, I was in uh, hard hat and safety shoes for about 50% of my time uh, working on the cybersecurity controls for those particular systems. And so 
that ended up being a good uh, set of experience for me there. I went to go work for Dale Peterson at Digital Bond um, soon after that. I ended up going to one of his conferences down in Miami and having a really good conversation with him. We'd only interacted over email before. And he was like, you know, you should come do this for me for a little while. And I went, that sounds like fun. I can go do that. Ended up being one of his uh, hand-tapped minions for about two and a half years until 2014. That's when I decided I was going to try owning my own business for a little while and uh, started up a really small consulting firm, i.e. just me and and uh, working with other contractors like me, doing vulnerability assessments, pen tests, design work. Um, ended up doing a lot of work in the nuclear sector, uh, commercial nuclear, uh, on some of their cybersecurity controls that were necessary just uh, associated with NEI 0809. And that was, that's like working in an entirely different world at that point. Left nuclear work for the long part and ended up working for Idaho National Labs. And specifically, I ended up working on the DARPA uh, Radix project, which was a rapid attack detection, suddenly I forget the I, characterization systems component basically a very large project that uh, was basically developing technologies to assist energy sector and the nation at large in basically assume breach, all right? Assuming that the adversary had become so strong that they had bulldozed through all of the particular defenses, how do you build everything back from the ground up? And I was the liaison to uh, the Department of Energy uh, before Caesar at the time. And the idea here was is to engage private sector folks, all right, the folks who actually know how these systems are run because they've been working on them. Uh, you know, they probably had hands-on on a system no more than a week earlier uh, at that point when I was talking with them. And they were able to tell you how they were connected and what the consequences were and how they, and most especially how they operated them and how they would recover from a cyber incident. And so it was often a back and forth between the DARPA folks saying, oh, have you considered this from a threat perspective? And them going, yes, have you considered this from an operations perspective? Like, you can't physically do that. And then have DARPA folks go, oh, we didn't realize that. Have you considered this? And then have them go, oh, we hadn't considered a threat might be able to do that. And then after that, it was a natural continuation to move from this small-scale experiment, exercise, technology development project uh, into more of an ongoing relationship uh, with the sector and with government itself on cybersecurity for energy systems. And that's how I ended up becoming a federal employee and working within CSER uh, at that point. What do you suppose it is that attracts you to that, this side of things, to, to the energy side? I have always taken energy for granted before I went to go work at Burns and Mac. Uh, the ability to be able to turn on a light switch and have lights come on, I just, it was just something that happened. Uh, it was expected behavior. Uh, and when it wasn't suddenly, you know, the, when it wasn't doing the expected behavior, when the light wasn't coming on, it was always jarring at that point. But coming into and working at Burns and Mac and seeing how everything is put together and how everything relies on energy and how we are using, you know, these computer systems in, in new and different ways and how they're incredibly important to, you know, maintaining operations and reliability. Uh, it really kind of found a niche in my brain that went, you know, I'm not someone who can live completely inside his head, inside of like a data structure that only exists inside a computer. But I'm also not someone who can just uh, abandon tech 
altogether. And I found a nice combination of the two in there. And then the idea that I'm, you know, helping helping keep the lights on, you know, we we have a tendency to use that that phrase when talking about electric power. You know, it, it sums up a lot of different things, you know, keeping the lights on, keeping uh, the world moving, keeping water flowing, keeping water treatment going, keeping hospitals uh, in energy so that they can, you know, keep people alive and, you know, all these other things that support our modern way of life. I, I really found my niche in there. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's literal and metaphorical. Yes, especially when you're working around it and you have the turbine engineer from, you know, X many years ago saying, okay, Mike, when it starts rattling like that, you don't want to be at its side. You need to come uh, in front of or behind the turbine because the blades have a tendency to come out that direction. You know, it, it, it also brings a, a nice dose of reality back to you too. So. Yeah. <laughs> How about these days? Liberation. Right. <laughs> How about these days at the Department of Energy? What is your day-to-day like there? So uh, at the DOE, I am a uh, program manager, effectively. So I have three primary jobs. Um, number one is I serve as a frontline subject matter expert on industrial control systems used in the energy sector. And I provide that experience to whomever in the, in the department needs it at that time. So I'll talk with anybody from renewables folks. Uh, I'll talk to grid development folks. I'll talk to folks within CSER who are working on policy-related items. And I basically provide that experience where it is. And if, if it exceeds a certain level, then the idea is, is that I assist in getting additional experience from uh, our partners at the national labs or going out to private sector to get uh, additional uh, capability at that point. So I'm kind of frontline uh, in order to answer basic questions. And then, you know, if it needs to be much, much deeper, I help in scoping of projects and things like that. Two other things that I do is that I'm also the public sector side uh, of the CRISP program, the Cybersecurity Risk Information Sharing Program, which is the program that the department has that takes in data voluntarily shared from uh, large utilities and utilities uh, that are part of pilot programs within the department. And it takes in network perimeter data. And then it uh, goes back and it does uh, a series of analysis and then provides that analysis back to uh, the folks who have voluntarily shared that data. And it's often on threats or vulnerabilities or, uh, you know, we're starting to see trends, uh, you know, for uh, scanning or for other things. And so it's been a really great experience working with that because the CRISP program is unique in government in that it's not one holy government, all right? This is industry leaning forward and saying, you know, this is something that we want to do collectively and we feel that our government partners can assist us with it. And this is all through the ISAC at this point, which brings up the second part, they've set up uh, a private sector component of it as well uh, that runs the program and administers the program. And it has an extremely vibrant governance and user group uh, that works pretty diligently on improving the program, uh, on making sure that the program is getting good returns for its data. You know, voluntarily shared data is not compelled data, right? You don't just give it to the government. Government needs to come back and say, this is the benefit you are receiving for it, all right? And we have to work on that side as well. And then the last component about it is I am uh, the technical lead for uh, a new pilot program that uh, the department has been working on and continually scoping and bringing to fruition, which is the Energy Threat Analysis Center pilot. And the idea here is, is that this project is 
So the CRISP program is a lot of we receive data and we push things out. All right. Hmm. The ETAC is about bringing in data, but also bringing in experience, what I refer to as energy sector context, and bringing that into the government sphere so that folks who are familiar with threats, uh, folks who are familiar with, uh, who, have a, who have a large understanding within the government of you know, what we're facing, we marry that up against energy sector context, and we can say, okay, what else can we pull from this, all right? We're not just looking at one side of the equation. We're also looking at the implementation side. And industry likes this because we move away from this, you know, one vulnerability will own them all kind of discussion or, hey, this is an Achilles heel or things like this. And it gets into a more nuanced conversation of real security measures, okay? We have multiple layers of defense, all right? We assume breach, all right? We work on these particular uh, types of, uh, security controls on a consistent basis, and we're continually moving forward, you know, on this, that, and the other. We're keeping track of threats. And then on the government side, I, the, the DOE has got a leg up in this, all right? The department owns uh, what are called like the federal power marketing agencies, which are effectively federal utilities. So we actually own and operate infrastructure, all right? Stuff that requires a hard hat and safety shoes. And not a lot of other um, federal departments do that. But we all run email, we all run FTP servers, we all have SharePoints, we all have cloud, you know, et cetera. But we don't all have OT. And one of the things that the energy sector brings us is this better understanding of OT so that when we're working on issues of concern or, or active threats, that we, we're working together on it, right? We're not making assumptions, okay? We're not... We're moving forward together in a much more consistent and effective basis. And that's the that's the idea of the ETAC. It's a lot more complicated because there are a lot more people. And when you add a lot of people to a problem, it tends to get really complicated really quick. But that's our guiding light at that point is working together on these problems with information that we mutually have. That's a really interesting insight, particularly that, that you all have... Uh, you kind of say, you know, big iron, uh, you have stuff that's actually running uh, and not every department in the government has that. You know, there, there are different places that have it. Department of Energy has got one of the larger concentrations. In fact, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is under Caesar now and it has um, oil and natural gas control systems that are associated with its operation as well. Um, there's also Bureau of Reclamation uh, and the Army Corps of Engineers. You know, they operate power generation facilities as well. You know, there are pockets of this within the federal government. But when it comes down to it, there's still a lot of, there's a lot of places where context from industry can really benefit work that the government is trying to do to protect, you know, from uh, large nation state, nation state type threats. Our thanks to Michael Tucker from the United States Department of Energy for joining us. There's more to our conversation, which you can hear in our next Control Loop episode. This week's Learning Lab, we hear Mark Urban speaking with Alex Beretta, Senior Solution Architect at Dragos. They talk about secure remote access. Hi, Mark. 
Welcome to another Learning Lab. Today, we're going to talk about secure remote access. And for that, I'm joined by Alex Beretta. He's a senior solution architect at Dragos. Uh, welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me, Mark. Really, really glad to be here. First of all, can you tell, tell me a little bit, what is a solutions architect? What kind of work do you do? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. So a solutions architect at, at Dragos um, has several facets of our role. Really, uh, part of it is going to be a pre-sales engineer kind of role where we're consulting with customer, with prospective customers, working with them to determine is the Drago solution right for them? What makes the most sense? What are really the goals that they are trying to accomplish with a technology like the Dragos platform? And then once that prospect becomes a customer, working with them to deploy, to manage the platform and help them really get value from the product. Excellent, excellent. In the course of that, you know, we started talking about secure remote access, and uh, that seemed like a uh, an area that, as you work with customers, you've seen pop up in in their consciousness. Uh, what what is SRA, and why is it a popular topic? By, by the way, Dragos does not offer SRA technology. So, so, Alex, tell me, what is secure remote access? Yeah, so secure remote access really is a means that organizations can leverage to access resources um, internal to a particular site, um, you know, remotely. And it really became more and more prevalent during the COVID-19 pandemic as remote work kind of went on the rise. And it became really prominent in a lot of industrial organizations as folks realized that a lot of the resources that were performing maintenance needed to continue to have that, that access, but weren't able to go on site due to the, the restrictions. So what a lot of organizations did is they either implemented some sort of, you know, remote connection, whether that was done via an RDP suite, whether a vendor was able to put in a remote access box directly to a device. Um, but a lot of those solutions can be done, uh, are not secure, right? And so what a lot of organizations are looking for is something that's going to allow these these internal and external third-party resources to access their environment and the resources that they need in a more secure manner, hence secure remote access. Gotcha. So I'm working from home. I'm in charge of managing one of the control systems in my plant. I want to fire up my software. Those aren't necessarily the most secure ways to tap in you know, from home to the plant and manage the systems. So secure mode access come, kind of comes in up over the top of that to to make that a secure uh, a secure connection. That, that so it's a popular topic because there are more people doing this, accessing their systems remotely from home, uh, and needing a way to make sure that that's protected. Is that why it's you know as we look at the SANS five critical controls for OT cybersecurity, secure remote access is one of those is one of those five critical controls. Why is that? Why? Do, how does it make the cut as to one of the five controls that you want to put in an OT security environment? It really definitely warrants its spot up there because as we get to kind of the more threat intelligence evaluations of how adversaries are leveraging the existing infrastructure to gain initial access and wreak havoc within these environments. What we've seen emerge over the last several years is that insecure remote connections are the, are one of the top threat vectors. 
um, that these adversaries are taking in order to gain that initial access point. And in fact, we've seen quite a bit of ransomware uh, enter an environment and propagate through these insecure remote access connections. So as part of the five critical controls for ICS cybersecurity, SANS decided to add that that secure remote access piece. Those five critical controls kind of come together to guide the OT team, to guide OT teams and IT teams that are responsible for OT cybersecurity um, and give them recommendations into how to operate an OT environment in a more secure manner. So that secure remote access becomes a critical piece of facilitating this environment's uh, functionality and the ability to operate on a defined schedule. Because when we really look at operational technology, the most important and most critical aspect of that is going to be the availability of the assets to perform their intended function. And if they're not able to perform that intended function, then, well, we have a problem. So having secure remote access beyond those five critical controls ensures that maintenance is able to take place on an expected basis, on a scheduled basis. Change management is able to be followed as expected, that organizations really are going to be able to monitor and continue operations within this environment in a secure manner. Gotcha. Now, secure remote access has been around for a long time. And I'll, I'll, I'll bring you back. Um, I've been in this business for a while. I remember back in, wow, this is going to, this is going to date me back in the late 1990s. Uh, when I, when I was in charge of uh, the computing network. I was installing a Shiva remote access bank of dial-up modems with a secure ID uh, token card. And that was my first brush with remote access technologies. Things have come a long way since, you know, since the Stone Age. But tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the top, some of the technology names that kind of swirl around, you know, secure remote access. Yeah. And so secure remote access, personally, I've been using it to kind of define a more generic term, but there's quite a few ways that it can be, there's quite a few ways that it can be not defined, but few terms that have, that might be thrown around that are all, that all may have some sort of a secure remote access aspect. Some of those might be IPsec VPN, zero trust network access, privileged access management. All of these are different ways of saying a similar Thing. They're using similar tools in order to accomplish a secure way of remotely accessing an environment. And all of those products and tools that I just listed have multiple other use cases. And I'm not, I don't mean to say that, you know, they're all secure remote access technology, but a lot of them have similarities to secure remote access technology. There's a lot of overlap within those tools that can be used to accomplish secure remote access when we look at it from an OT perspective. So, Yes, it has been around for a pretty long time. I'm sure a lot of IT organizations are going to be pretty familiar with secure remote access. Um, and we'll touch on, you know, pick, when we talk about picking a secure remote access vendor, um, a lot of folks that might have something in place in IT, it might make sense to just overlap that into OT or extend that deployment into OT because it's going to be the most, the fastest and most effective way to kind of gain that security in an OT environment. So when we think about the history, you know, it really started to change in COVID-19 and, and along with the evolution of ICS attacks over the last probably five to 10 years, that's when we really started to see the focus on threats targeting the OT environment directly. So 
that's kind of why we've seen a lot of folks um, in the OT space look at secure remote access in a different light and take it a little bit more seriously. Thanks very much. Uh, and again, we'll provide the link to the, the uh, blog in the show notes. And uh, that's it again for today's Learning Mind. And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for this show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Roche and Mark Urban. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.